Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 245 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 28 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. I want to welcome you to episode 245 of the show, and I especially want to say hello and welcome to all the new listeners my goodness, uh, going by uh, my download statistics, uh, there are a lot of new listeners listening to the show these days, uh, a lot of new listeners going back and downloading all the old episodes. Um, so so welcome to all of you. I, I have to say I'm, I'm super impressed. Not only that people are going back and downloading and listening to all of the 100 episodes in the feed, but a lot of you are actually going to the website and downloading the even older episodes uh, that aren't in the feed. Uh, just for new listeners, uh, only the most recent 100 episodes are in the feed. Um, unfortunately, my host that I use uh, only lets me have 100 items in an RSS feed. Um, so that's why that is. Uh, so only the 100 most recent episodes are in the feed. But over at StarWalkerStudios.com, you can get all, what, 245 now episodes of the show. Um, you can download those and listen to those for free. And also, for those of you who are patrons of StarWalker Studios, uh, you get access to your own private RSS feed uh, through Patreon. And uh, just in case you didn't know about that, uh, that feed does have all of the Game Master's Journey episodes in it, all of the old episodes, and also has all of the GM intrusions episode. So if you are a patron, you can subscribe to that feed um, that you can get over on Patreon, on our page on Patreon, and uh, you you can get all the the episodes in your podcast app that way without having to go to the website and listen to them or download them from the website. So that's an option for you too. So welcome to all the new members. Great to have you uh, with me. I want to remind all of you, and, and especially for, for new listeners, um, we do have a couple communities where you can connect with myself and other listeners of the of the show, other listener GMs. So we have a community over on MeWe, and that's MeWe.com, M-E-W-E.com. And if you're not familiar with MeWe, it's similar to uh, Google+, Plus, uh, similar to Facebook. So just like you can have a group or a community on Google+, or Facebook, same thing with MeWe. And a lot of the RPG communities on Google Plus are moving over to MeWe because Google Plus is going away in April, I believe it is. Um, so MeWe is a really great platform. Um, you can do all the things there that you could do on Google Plus or on Facebook. Um, but unlike Facebook, for instance, MeWe does not track what you're doing online and they don't collect and sell your data. And you know, for people wondering, well, well, how do they and they also don't advertise. So um, you don't have to deal with ads all over the place. Like, I mean, I don't go on Facebook much anymore, but every time I do, I'm just amazed at how much crap <laughs> there is on my screen that isn't content that's advertising or suggesting something they think I want to see and, and how little of what's on my screen is actually what I'm there to see. 
Um, so you don't have to deal with any of that crap on MeWe. And as far as, you know, how they keep going and make their money, uh, they have premium features that they sell um, that, that you can get a la carte. But you don't need any of those free features. I have a completely free account. I, I haven't paid anything for MeWe. And I, you know, was able to have my own community and, and do all the things I want to do. But but those premium features give you things like double encryption on the text messaging. So just like uh, Hangouts Messenger, you have, uh, you know, where you can send text messages back and forth to other users of MeWe or, or on your community. Um, so, for instance, our community, I mean, we we actually have like a chat channel that I don't think anyone has ever used. But if you wanted to, you could go on there and, and chat um, in real time. Of course, if you want to chat with other listener GMs in real time, uh, the best place really, I think, to do that is our Discord server. So in addition to the MeWe community, we have a server on Discord uh, where you can chat in real time with other listener GMs and with myself. And I also have a voice channel uh, hooked up on there. So if you want to, you can go in there and, and talk to people, actually talk to people. Um, so you can find the link to our community on MeWe and our server on Discord in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. So I've gotten messages from a lot of you suggesting that I should write some kind of Game Master guidebook or, you know, tips and tricks, that kind of thing through 245 episodes of Game Master's Journey and, and however many episodes of GM Intrusions I've, I've done. I've, I've handed out a lot of GM advice and, and a lot of you would, would like um, all of that collected together um, in a printed format um, so it's easier to reference and, and things like that. And I think that's a great idea. And, and I've started working on that. Um, I initially thought I would do some kind of, you know, guide for, for GMs, just, you know, everything I could think of as far as advice for GMs and tips and tricks and things like that. And as I started, uh, collecting all my ideas, I began to realize that this thing was going to be huge, like too huge. So what I'm thinking right now is it's actually going to end up being three different books. Um, the first one, is going to be just a general GMing guidebook. And the idea with that will be it will be useful to GMs of any game. I'm, I'm not going to go into specifics about D&D or any other specific game. It's going to be more general GM advice. And then I'm going to do another book that is going to be targeted specifically for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Um, and I think <laughs> I have enough D&D specific stuff uh, to make that happen. And then the third book is going to be all about world building. So again, this was all going to be one book, but it's just too much. Um, and it would take so long um, to do if I did it all as one book. So I would love to hear from you, uh, your thoughts on that. And, and especially if you have any ideas for topics you think I should definitely cover or questions I should definitely answer. Uh, please let me know. I, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. Uh, or if you'd like to post your ideas in a, a more public forum um, to maybe get feedback from other listeners or, or spur a discussion. Uh, I did make a post about this in our MeWe community uh, asking for ideas and requests from people uh, for these books. So you can go to our MeWe community and uh, respond to that post and 
and give us all your your great ideas. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. All right. So for today's episode, I am going to be talking about uh, one of the adventures that's been released for D&D in, in recent months. Uh, this is going to be a discussion and review of Waterdeep Dragon Heist. So stay tuned for that. And uh, without further ado, let's move on with the show. All right. So today I am talking about the adventure Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Uh, so this is a book very similar for, for to the other books for D&D. It's a hardcover book. Um, cover price is $49.95 here in the U.S. It's, uh, you know, it's like the other D&D books, same, same paper, same binding, it seems like. You know, I'm overall pretty happy with the quality and the construction of the D&D books. My, my one complaint about these books is I would prefer paper that is less glossy, um, depending on the lighting in the room that you're trying to read this, these in. Um, it, it can be kind of annoying. So I know I, I love to read these on my couch. I have uh, various lamps in the room. I have one overhead and you know, I have to tilt this book at a very specific angle <laughs> to actually be able to read it because the pages are kind of glossy and, and you get a glare um, from the lights. So that's unfortunate, but I don't know, maybe that's a necessary evil. Maybe they they need to use that kind of paper for the kind of ink they use or whatever. I don't know. Um, so what this book is, is it's an adventure. Um, it is an adventure for first level characters and it will take them to fifth level, um, presumably, if they if they play through this adventure. Now, I will tell you, I'm saying presumably because something I've noticed very consistently um, with D&D 5th edition products, specifically adventures, is when they tell you, for instance, this book, they, they're basically telling you this is an adventure for first level characters and for a group of, you know, however many, um, it's probably for four characters. They usually are for four. Uh, a group of four first level characters that play through this adventure will earn enough XP to reach fifth level. And that is pretty much always not true. <laughs> I don't know why this is. I don't know why there isn't someone on the team at Wizards that actually goes through and adds up the XP to make sure that their claim of there being enough XP to get you to X level um, is actually true, but they don't do that obviously because it, it's never true. Um, I haven't done it with this book, but with most of the other adventures they've published, just for curiosity's sake, I have added all the XP and it never is enough to get you to the level that they say you should get to. And, and I've talked about XP and D&D quite a bit um, on the show before and in a nutshell, I basically, I think that the XP in 5th edition is broken. Um, this is just one symptom of that disease. The fact that none of their adventures actually give characters enough XP to get to the next level. Another symptom of, of this disease is the fact that if you actually use XP and you do everything by the book as far as the kind of encounters you give your, play, your players, the amount of XP you're rewarding for encounters, the CR of the creatures you're using, all of that, 
um, and you do XP fairly, you will not be able to realize the leveling pace that they suggest for the game. It will be much, much slower. I don't know why that is. I don't know why they don't just make the amount of XP needed for each level less so that their adventures do actually give you enough XP to level. But I can just tell you, if you are a game master going to run 5th edition D&D and you're fairly new to it, whether you're running published adventures or you're running your own adventures of your own creation, you can save yourself a lot of headaches by not using XP. Either just hand wave leveling and have the characters level when you want them to, or use some variation of the milestone XP method. However, that method is also broken because if you use <laughs> the XP amounts for the milestones that they suggest, um, it's going to take you many more sessions for each level than, than what they suggest it should take. So if you are going to use the milestone method, you're going to have to greatly increase the XP that those milestones are worth if you want player characters to level every two to three, four hour sessions, which is what is suggested uh, for the game. So yeah, really, you can save yourself a lot of headache by just either completely hand-waving the leveling or coming up with your own system of handing out XP. And if you're going to do that, um, I don't want this episode to turn into the, into about this, but really quickly, if you're going to do your own XP or your own XP for milestones, I, I highly suggest that you make those XP values a percentage of what the player characters need to level because the amount of XP they need for each level changes dramatically. So the only way to not have to reinvent the wheel every time they level up as far as what various encounters are going to be worth as far as XP is to make that a function of the amount needed to level. So you might say a miles, a major milestone XP is um, one third the XP they need to get to the next level or whatever you want it to be. So that's that's how I suggest you do that. But enough about that. Let's get back to Waterdeep Dragon Heist. So basically what this campaign is, as, as the title indicates, it's, it's a heist adventure. So the setup for this adventure is there are half a million gold pieces that have gone missing in the city of Waterdeep. And there are various groups and individuals who are trying to find this small fortune and the player characters uh, get pulled into this. And basically the goal of the adventure is for them to find the 500,000 gold pieces before these various NPC agents do. And that's the basic setup of the adventure. So, you know, right away, right out the gate, this is not an adventure for everyone. <laughs> this isn't an adventure that every DM is going to want to run. This isn't an adventure that every player is going to want to play. So if you're wondering, you know, is this product for me? Um, the first question is, do you feel like running a heist adventure? And the second question is, are your players going to want to play a heist adventure? So there is a lot of investigation in this adventure, a lot of role playing with NPCs, because it's very much, especially the beginning of it, it's very much, um, it's not a murder mystery, but it's very much like a murder mystery where the player characters are collecting clues and questioning various NPCs and, and basically doing an investigation. 
So, you know, I think most people are either going to be really excited to do something like that or not going to want to do something like that. So that's the first thing to consider is, you know, is this the kind of adventure I want to run? Now, one thing I do like about this adventure is especially at first level, it can be really difficult if you're creating your own adventures to figure out what to do with a group of first level characters. Um, They're not very capable in combat. It's very easy to kill a character by accident. It's very easy to kill the whole party by accident, even if you're following all the guidelines on building encounters and all that stuff. And even at second level, you know, there's still quite a bit of that. Player characters are pretty fragile. Um, They don't have as many resources at their disposal as far as equipment, magic items, and and abilities. Um, So it can be difficult to figure out what to do with a first level or a second level party. And one thing I really like about this adventure is it shows you one really good way to handle that, which is for those early levels, not focus so much on combat, focus more on role-playing and interactions with NPCs And doing something like an investigation where, um, you know, there aren't as many, you know, combats with bands of goblins and things like that. It's more um, trying to figure out what's going on. It it takes place in a city. It's mostly safe. And and yeah, there are some combat encounters, but they're kind of few and far between and tend to be combats with humans or humanoids, which tend not to be super tough compared to a lot of the monsters and so it's it's a great way to approach, I think, a low-level adventure, which is to say, hey, let's focus less on the combat. Let's focus more on social interaction and exploration, the other two pillars of the game. And then as the, the player characters level up and they get more capable, then we can shift into more of a focus on combat. Um, now, the downside of that is a lot of times combat is what players are coming to D&D for. I mean, that's really what Dungeons and Dragons is about. Um, If you look at the rules in the game, the vast, vast majority of them are involved with combat. So that's really what D&D does best. That's the bread and butter of D&D, right, is combat. So you, you could have an issue, you know, where you have these players make first level characters and it's like, oh, hey, there's going to be very little combat for the first few game sessions. And that may not be what they're looking for, may not be what they signed up for. Um, So again, you know, like with any adventure, you got to think about your players and the characters they're playing. And is this adventure a good fit for your group right now? All right. So really quickly, I'm I'm just going to go through the book and tell you what's all in here. And then we'll get more into some specifics. So the first thing we have is a pronunciation guide. And if you've listened to this show much uh, for very long or you've watched a lot of my actual play, you know that I'm not a huge fan of the ridiculous Forgotten Realms names that they come up with. And, you know, I think if you're going to come up with these ridiculous names that you at least owe it to your players and your readers to give them some guide on how to pronounce these ridiculous names. So I'm glad this is something they started doing. So this can be helpful, you know, if you're curious about how to pronounce uh, this mash of letters that Wizards just gave you for a name. Uh, We then have our introduction, you know, introduces you to what what this adventure is about, kind of what's all in the book, layout, things like that. And then uh, we have a choose your villain. So this is something I'll talk about more later. 
Um, but something kind of different about this adventure is there are kind of four different ways you can approach and run this adventure. There are four different main villains uh, you can choose from. And then there are four different seasons that you can run the adventure in. So, yeah, I'm not going to go into that now because I don't want to get in the spoilery stuff yet. I want to give you a warning before I start going into spoiler stuff because there's definitely going to be a part of this review that you're not going to want to listen to if you're going to play this adventure. I don't want to spoil it for you if you're going to play it. So there's going to be a part of the review that's more for people considering running it as a GM. So in this overview, I'm going to avoid the spoilery stuff. Um, so we have discussion of the different villains you can choose, as well as the the four seasons you can run the adventure in. We've got some art. <laughs> And then we have a flow chart for the adventure, which is really nice. They don't always do this, but it's always nice uh, to have a flow chart to show you, you know, how the player characters are likely uh, to go through the adventure and tells you, you know, which chapter of the book you're going to use at, at which times and, and things like that. Now, this adventure does take place in the city of Waterdeep. So a significant portion of this book is about Waterdeep. So here we have a section on life in Waterdeep and something that's really cool here that I really like is they have a section on breaking the law and they talk quite a bit in this book about the law of Waterdeep, I guess, anticipating uh, that some player characters may do some unlawful things and uh, giving the DM some help in deciding how to react to that. So here we have a section on basically what will happen to a player character or anyone who breaks the laws of Waterdeep um, goes into, you know, how things will go down if they get arrested, their trial and, and all that. So so that's really cool. And, and I really feel like any campaign that's going to take place in a city or really any time any RPG supplement details a city, um, that should really be something that's discussed is what are the laws like? You know, how is it handled when someone breaks various laws, you know, so the DM or the GM knows what to do when a player character runs afoul of the law. So that's really awesome. We've then got a section on character creation. They talk about, you know, buying equipment and um, they go into some of the the noble families of Waterdeep. So if you have a character who's going to take the noble background, uh, they have some information on a few of the the noble families that the character can choose to be a member of one of those families, which that's really cool. Um, they talk about the guilds of Waterdeep. And, and this is cool. You know, I know people are always looking for ways to use one of these products in other ways other than just running this adventure. And there is some of that in this book. And, and so one of those things is uh, a chart here, the guilds of Waterdeep. And it's got, man, I don't know, something like 20, looks like more than 20 different guilds for everything from the Baker's Guild to the Dung Sweepers Guild, which is basically the Street Cleaners, Guild of Butchers, Vintners, Distillers and Brewers Guilds and things like that. So this is useful for any player character who's going to take the uh, Guild Artisan, I believe it is, background or be a member of a guild, uh, useful for that. And just useful for any GM wanting to detail uh, one of their cities. It, it gives you a great list of, of the various guilds that could be active in your city. 
Um, so this is something that I think is useful to pretty much any GM of D&D or, or any similar fantasy-themed uh, role-playing game. Um, good stuff. And then, of course, we have our various factions and, and some information about the factions in the game. So in Forgotten Realms, we have uh, various factions that, that player characters can join. So, you know, we've got the usual ones like the Emerald Enclave, uh, the Harpers, Lord's Alliance, Order of the Gauntlet, um, the Zentarum. Um, these are all ones, you know, that, that they pretty much have in every adventure. But then we have some additional ones uh, for this adventure. And hopefully this isn't going to give too much away. But we have uh, Bregan Darth, which I'm not sure that's how you pronounce that. But it's all made up words anyway. So who cares? Um, which is the organization run by the drow elf. Jarlaxel from Menzo Branzan, uh, which is a kind of roguish organization. So if you've read uh, any of the Dark Elf books or Icewind Dale trilogy or any of the R.A. Salvatore Dritz books, you probably know about Jarlaxel. You probably know about Brigandareth. And uh, actually, Jarlaxel was on the cover of the book. So I guess it's not too much of a spoiler to say he might be somehow involved in this adventure and uh, Bregandareth is, is a faction that player characters can actually be a member in. Um, pretty much have to be a dark elf. So this is for a player who wants to play a dark elf. They could be part of Bregandareth, which is pretty awesome, I gotta say. I'm, I think that's awesome. If I were going to play in this adventure, I would probably make a dark elf and be a member of Bregandareth just because that's something that you usually can't do in most campaigns that most GMs run. So it's it's one of those things that, you know, it's a limited time opportunity kind of thing. Another faction we have is Forest Gray. Um, so this is a, I feel like this was maybe created by Matt Mercer. I don't know. Um, but but Matt Mercer ran a campaign, live streamed a campaign uh, about Forest Gray. And it's kind of this elite kind of special forces group uh, in Waterdeep. So that's another faction uh, that player characters can be uh, a member of. Um, and then we have the Xanathar guild. Um, so Xanathar is a beholder who lives underneath Waterdeep and runs a thieves guild, basically. And so you could also be affiliated with his guild. So right away, um, you probably see here uh, kind of a possibility, more so than in a lot of published adventures, for less than good characters, for neutral characters or even evil characters. Um, because it's really hard to imagine a good aligned character in Bregandareth or especially in the Xanathar guild. I mean, Bregandareth, you, you could argue maybe that some good aligned character, uh, maybe neutral good or chaotic good could, could be a member of Bregandareth, but Xanathar's guild, uh, not so much. So, you know, that's something to think about if you don't want non-good characters at your table or if you don't want evil characters at your table, you may want to limit or not allow uh, membership in Xanathar Guild or Brigandareth. And then we have a little discussion of the Yawning Portal, which is an inn in Waterdeep and um, kind of kind of interesting. The Yawning Portal has been discussed in three products for fifth edition now. Uh, it was first discussed in Tales from the Yawning Portal, which was a book full of standalone adventures 
um, that were kind of very loosely tied together by this yawning portal in in Waterdeep, or, or it might be slightly outside Waterdeep. I'm, I'm not super savvy on the geography of Waterdeep. But near Waterdeep is is a mountain, and under that mountain is a huge dungeon complex called Under Mountain. And indeed, that's what the next adventure that came out, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, I believe it's called, that's all about Under Mountain. It's kind of the fifth edition version of Under Mountain, which I believe was originally a first edition dungeon. And then I think was also, they also did a version in second edition. I could be wrong about that, but it was... It was an advanced Dungeons and Dragons dungeon. One of the one of the two or both, either first or second edition. So, of course, they, they talk about the Yawning Portal again in uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And they talk about it a little bit in um, this adventure. So, so one kind of downside with this adventure is they don't spend a lot of time or effort giving you hooks as far as how to get the player characters involved in this adventure. And kind of the one hook that they give you involves the yawning portal and is kind of where the adventure starts out. And I think really the reason for that, because the yawning portal isn't really relevant to this adventure. So I think that the reason that they do that, that is, is this adventure takes characters presumably from one to five and then dungeon of the mad mage starts at level five. So, and, and they both are, you know, this is water deep dragon heist and that's water deep dungeon of the mad mage. So I think the idea is that you run these adventures in, you know, one after the other, although you don't have to do it that way. Both of these are, are kind of set up as standalone adventures. And, and really, other than the fact that it involves the yawning portal slightly, this adventure really doesn't have anything to do with Dungeon of the Mad Mage. It doesn't really tie into it much at all. So there's no reason that you have to run this if you want to run Dungeon of the Mad Mage. You could start with Lost Minds of Fandelver will get the characters to level five. Or you could also do the Sunless Citadel and Forge of Fury from Tales from the Yawning Portal, which would also get the characters to level five. Or you could do your own thing until level five. Or you could use some of the material from one of the other campaigns um, like, for instance, that I, I feel like the beginning of Storm King's Thunder, it kind of has its own little adventure for the beginning levels that, that you could just use for this instead if you wanted to. So, yeah, so so it's kind of weird because there's not much about the Yawning Portal in here. There's not much about the Yawning Portal in Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So, you know, if you really want the information about the Yawning Portal, you need to go to Tales from the Yawning Portal so it's almost like if you're a completionist kind of DM and you want to run Dungeon of the Mad Mage, you almost feel like, or you're almost going to feel like you need Tales from the Yawning Portal to get that information. And you're going to need Dragon Heist to get whatever might be relevant in there. And I don't know, it almost feels a little disingenuous to me, if only because Tales from the Yawning Portal set up the Yawning Portal Tavern, which which the whole idea of this tavern is within the tavern, there is a pit that goes down to Under Mountain. And that's how you get in the Under Mountain, Under Mountain from this tavern. So the yawning portal is this pit that goes down to Under Mountain. So we have this book, Tales from the Yawning Portal, that's all these different adventures. And the kind of thing loosely tying all these adventures together is this yawning portal in which is the entrance to this mega dungeon under mountain. 
And yet none of the adventures in Tales from the Yawning Portal have anything to do with Thunder Mountain. So it's kind of weird. You're going to set up this, this tavern with this pit going down to this super dungeon, but yet you don't want the characters to actually go down that pit because you don't have any adventures for the super dungeon. All the adventures in Tales from the Yawning Portal are for other dungeons in other places. So I don't know. It seems like it would have made a lot more sense to put all that information about the Yawning Portal in Dungeon of the Mad Mage where you would need it and have some other kind of device to loosely tie together the adventures and tales from the Yawning Portal. And I know they plan their books years ahead of time. So when they were writing and developing Tales from the Yawning Portal, they knew they were going to do Undermountain later. So it seems to me like kind of a cheap way to try to get you to feel like you have to buy more books. But, you know, your mileage may vary on that. So anyway, we have a page here on some of the NPCs in the Yawning Portal. And that's the introduction chapter. And then we we get into the adventure. So then chapter one is the, the beginning of the adventure Chapter two is is the next part of the adventure. And again, I'm not going to go into spoilery stuff right now. And then chapter three is more of the adventure. So, okay, chapter four is where we start to diverge a little bit. So we have four different possible villains for the adventure that you could choose. And then each of those villains is associated with one of the seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, right? So chapters five, six, seven, eight, and nine are for each of the four different seasons. And then chapter four has a series of encounters and you're going to do these encounters in different orders, depending on which of the seasons you choose. And they have a kind of flow chart in this for the four seasons in which order you're going to go through these encounters. So chapter four, you're pretty much going to use all of it, no matter which of the villains slash seasons you choose. Um, however, once you get to chapter five of the book, this is where it diverges. And so unless you run this adventure multiple times and each of those times choose a different villain in a different season, unless that is the case, chapters five, six, seven, and eight, you're only going to use one of them. So yeah. That's that's a major downside of this book, in, in in my opinion, that I'll I'll talk more about later. And then uh chapter nine is all about Waterdeep. So chapter nine is just stuff about Waterdeep, uh, to use it as the setting for this adventure. And it's some pretty good stuff. You know, if you're interested in Waterdeep, I mean, obviously this isn't gonna cover everything that's been covered in previous editions. And in third edition, we had a whole book on Waterdeep. I think in previous editions, there might have been a box set or two about Waterdeep. Um, so obviously, you know, these few pages in this book isn't going to cover all that. But as far as fifth edition, this is the most information we've gotten on Waterdeep so far. So, you know, if you're running in Waterdeep, that could be useful to you. And then uh, Appendix A, we've got some new magic items. Uh, Appendix B, we've got monsters and NPCs. And um, like the other books, any monster that they use, it isn't from the monster manual. If they use a, a monster from one of the other books like Volo's Guide to Monsters, uh, then then they reprint that in here. So the only books you have to have to run this are 
you know, the core three, the player's handbook, monster manual and the DMG. And yeah, they've got a lot of NPCs in here and some, some new monsters, including uh, the walking statues of Waterdeep, which are super cool um, and very useful to me because I have something very similar in my city of Alondria in Primordia. So gives me some more uh, fodder for, for fleshing those out for my city. And then finally, uh, we've got a player handout of uh, NPCs that are found in the Yawning Portal. Um, we have a player handbook that's the legal code of Waterdeep. So again, you know, really fleshes out the laws of Waterdeep. And th- this is something you can give their, the players so they have some idea of what's allowed and not allowed in the city. And then um, we have a map at the back. Um, and that's basically what's in the book. So um, let me give a, a little bit of a kind of my reaction to this now before we get into the spoilery stuff. Um, I think if you want to run a heist adventure, if you want to run something where in the lower levels, you're, you're not so much focusing on combat and focusing more on investigation, social interaction, exploration and things like that, um, this is a good adventure for that. If you want an adventure to take characters from level one to five that you for some reason want to run multiple times, uh, this could be a good venture for that because, again, there's kind of four different versions of this adventure depending on the villain and the season that you choose. I feel like it's at least partially being marketed as something you could run multiple times with the same group. And I definitely do not think that's the case out of this whole book, <laughs> there's only one chapter of the adventure. And, and let's see, one, two, three, four, five. So basically five chapters of this are going to be chapters that are adventure material. So only one of those five chapters is going to be different when you run the adventure again with a different villain slash season. The other four chapters are going to be exactly the same uh, with the exception of the one chapter where you're going to do the exact same encounters, but in a different order. So I don't think that's nearly enough difference that a group of players is going to want to play through this again, just for that one chapter of content that's going to be different. I don't think that's the case at all. So the only way I see them having four versions of this adventure in here being a good thing for you is if you plan to run this adventure four or more times for four or more different groups of players, if that's you, um, you might find some value in the fact that there's four versions of the adventure in here. I guess another possible upside is, you know, you have those four different seasons slash villains slash chapters to choose from. So you can pick the one that you like the most, which, you know, normally with an adventure it is what it is. There, there's not a whole lot as far as here are four options of ways, you know, you could run this adventure. Or here are four different sets of encounters. Choose one of them. You know, you don't see that a lot. So that could be a possible upside as far as, well, maybe I really don't like one of these. I don't have to use it. But I, I feel like those possible upsides, first of all, they're pretty niche. They're not going to apply to most GMs or even very many GMs. And because this is way too long to run at a con, which is the one time I can think of where you might want to run the same adventure multiple times, but it, you know, it's a level one to five adventure. It's going to take you numerous game sessions to get through this. So it's not a good con adventure. 
So I'm, I don't know why you would want to run the same adventure four times. I, I've only done that once or twice. And one of the times was at Gen Con and I ran the same adventure like four or five times. And I got to tell you, each time I ran the same adventure, I enjoyed it less. Like it gets really boring. It's like watching the same movie over and over again. You know, it's like, even if you really like the movie, you're probably not going to enjoy it the fourth time you watch it as much as you did the first or second time. And the same thing, even more so with running a game. Because let's face it, running a game takes a lot more time out of your life than watching a movie. And why on earth a GM would want to run the same adventure over and over and over again is beyond me. Other than I guess you could feel like you'd mastered that adventure. or Maybe every time you run it, it's a little better. But I don't know. That's not what I run D&D for. I don't run D&D to run the perfect adventure. I, I do it to have fun. And once I've run an adventure, I'm done with it. I don't want to run it again. That's not fun. I want to do something new. And I know my players do. My players don't want to run the same adventure again, just for one quarter of it to be slightly different. So if you look at this, like I'm going to spend 50 bucks on this book. And then you consider that three of the chapters are going to be completely useless to you. Um, that seems more of a downside than an upside to me. But again, your mileage may vary. <laughs> All right. So I, I think I've said what I can say about this product uh, without getting spoilery. So please, if you're a player and you think you may play this adventure in the future and you have a GM that's going to run it for you or may run it for you, or you're, you're just not planning to run it yourself um, or seriously considering buying it, then I would stop now and not be spoiled so that when or if you play this in the future, you can enjoy it and, and not ruin it for your GM and the rest of the people at the table because you know what everything is going to happen. But if you're someone thinking about running this adventure or you're thinking about buying this book, um, I'm going to go into more details to help you hopefully make that decision. But there will be spoilers ahead. So you have been warned. All right. So first thing about this adventure, it literally seriously starts with a fight in a tavern. So you probably have an opinion about that. You either think that's awesome to start this adventure with the most cliched possible beginning you could think of, or you might think that's super lame. I'll, I'll leave that up to you to decide. Um, even worse, though, this is a fight in a bar that doesn't even involve the player characters. Now, it's assumed that they're going to get involved but it in no way involves them as it's presented. It's NPCs fighting with one another has nothing to do with the player characters. So yeah, personally, I think this is about the most terrible way to start an adventure you could come up with. I mean, if you're going to do go full cliche and start with a bar fight, at least have it involve the player characters. Don't have them be spectators. Um, anyway. All right. And then we have Volo. Um, basically is the hook that, that wants the characters to proceed on what is going to pull this, them into this adventure. And it basically, the way it starts out is Volo needs the player characters to find somebody. So the beginning of this adventure is them trying to find this NPC. So this is, you know, where the investigation begins because they're trying to figure out what happened to this NPC. So this is a, a friend of Volo's who Volo believes has been kidnapped. 
and he hires the player characters to to go find this person. And and this is what's going to, you know, lead them into the rest of the adventure. This guy's name is Floon. Again, terrible name, but that's the Forgotten Realms for you. And yeah, it, it's an investigation. So I I think for an investigation, it's presented pretty well. It does really lead the characters along by the nose to to a great degree. But I mean, it's a published adventure. What are you going to do? So, you know, again, I think your reaction to this as far as how much you like this or don't like this is really going to depend on how excited you are to run this kind of adventure. I think if you're super stoked to run this kind of find a missing person investigation, then this will be great. This will be fine. Um, If you're not super stoked by this, then you, you may find this a little lacky. All right. So now now we're really getting into the spoilers here. Um, so please, if, if you're playing this, don't, this is really going to ruin it for you. Don't, uh, don't keep listening. Um, chapter two is called Troll Skull Alley. And, and basically what happens, and this is part of the adventure that I really like. And as part of it, I may actually use someday, even though I will probably never run this adventure, I might take this part out and use it someday. So Volo, basically when he hires the player characters to find this guy Floon, um, <laughs> terrible name. Um, he promises them, you know, riches, money, whatever. And, you know, kind of a twist. And it's one thing I do like about this adventure is there's quite a few twists, which I enjoy and is part of the heist trope. Right. Um, so you got to do that. So a twist that happens is assuming that the player characters find Floon and, and complete the quest. Volo doesn't have the money that he promised them, but what he has instead is the deed to a manor in Waterdeep, Troll Skull Manor. So basically, the player characters get a stronghold. I mean, it's not really a stronghold. It's a manor. It's not fortified or anything, and it's in the middle of the city. Um, but they get this place, and and it's a pretty cool place. Uh, what this was, was it was actually an inn and a tavern, uh, that's that's been abandoned partly because it's haunted now. So this is really cool because the player characters get kind of a, a base of operations. They get a business they can run in, in the form of an inn and a tavern and it's haunted. So, you know, there's some encounters involved in actually making this a place that they can use because they have to get rid of, uh, I believe it's a poltergeist uh, that's haunting it. So that is really cool. Another thing that's really cool is in this chapter, they detail this alley, this little block of Waterdeep. And, you know, again, this is something that I will probably use in some campaign in the future, because not only do I have this cool inn and tavern that the PCs can own, and it even goes into, you know, running the business and how much money they can make from it and stuff like that. But it also details the surrounding area and talks about some of the shops and things that are nearby, which conveniently are the types of places the player characters are going to want to go to. So let's let's go through these real quick. So we have actual Troll Skull Manor, which is the building that the player characters get ownership of. Um, we have the Bent Nail, and this is a place that sells uh, wooden weapons and shields. And this person also crafts and sells furniture and wood sculptures, which at first might seem completely non-relevant until you remember that the player characters just in- inherited a manor slash inn slash tavern 
that's in disrepair and, you know, could probably use some sprucing up. So here's a guy where they could get new furniture. They could get, you know, some cool statues and, and stuff like that. Next, we have uh, Steam and Steel. Uh, this is an establishment run by a couple Genasi and sells metal weapons, armor, and shields. Uh, basically, they can get any metal armor, metal weapon, or metal shield uh, in the player's handbook. Then we have uh, Coralon's Crown, which is a place where they can get non-magical herbal rem remedies. It's run by a druid. And they can also buy some potions there. So this druid sells potions of animal friendship, climbing, greater healing, healing, and water breathing. And so not only is this cool for a place where the player characters can buy some low-level potions, uh, but it's also a some idea of what you might charge for those elsewhere. So potion of animal friendship is 125 gold. Potion of climbing is 50 gold. Potion of greater healing is 250 gold. Potion of healing is 50 gold, which that's in the player's handbook. We knew that. And potion of water breathing is 250 gold. So that's cool. I love stuff like that. So that's something you could definitely use in other adventures. If you have someone that player characters can buy potions from, this will help you get started on, on what you're going to charge for those. Next, we have the Tiger's Eye. And this is a private detective agency, which is pretty cool and a little unusual until you remember that this is a heist uh, story and starts out with a, you know, find the missing person investigation. So uh, there is an NPC detective nearby that the PCs can go to for help. And this character can discover any secret in Waterdeep for a fee. So again, you know, they say use your judgment when pricing the services, but um, they suggest 50 gold pieces for most investigations. So this is really cool too, because it's a way for player characters to get information they might not be able to get otherwise. So there might be some crucial thing they need to know at some point and they don't have any way to learn it. Well, here's an NPC they can learn it from for a fee. Next, we have Bookworm's Treasure. Um, so this is a shop that sells books of all sorts, including a small collection of spell books. So these aren't spell books that the player characters can buy, but they can pay to copy spells from it. So if you have a, a wizard in a party, the wizard can copy spells from the spell book. So um, it says that the purveyor of the shop can scribe any of these spells as a spell scroll, but charges twice the listed cost for the service. So it lists all the spells he's got. It gives you what it would cost for a character to copy the spell. And then for double that, they could get a scroll of it, which is useful to any spellcaster that has that spell on their spell list which is pretty cool. So for 25 gold, they can copy, comprehend languages, detect magic, feather fall, find familiar, mage armor, magic missile, shield, or unseen servant. For 75 gold, they can copy arcane lock, continue, continual flame, dark vision, invisibility, magic weapon, misty step, rope trick, or suggestion. And, and again, they can get a scroll of these for twice the cost. Uh, for 150 gold, they can copy Clairvoyance, Counterspell, Dispel Magic, Fireball, Fly, Non-Detection, or Water Breathing. For 300 gold, they can copy Arcane Eye, Fabricate, Greater Invisibility, Ice Storm, Locate Creature, Polymorph. And for 750 gold, they can copy Bigby's Hand, Cone of Cold, and Modify Memory. So again, this is super useful, way beyond this particular adventure, because anytime in the future, 
you know, you want to, you want your wizard to get, be able to get some more spells. You could have a, a, another wizard character that will let them or NPC that will let them copy spells for a price. This will give you an idea of what that price would be. Also anywhere a player character might be able to, to buy a scroll. This will give you an idea of, of what that scroll could cost. So I really love stuff like that, that you can use above and beyond the particular adventure that, that it's in. Of course, all this stuff would be much more useful in some kind of GM book that isn't an adventure. So you don't have to buy an adventure to get these little tidbits, but you know, in a perfect world, right? Uh, we've got a sewer access point because um, the sewers are involved in the adventure to some degree. And yeah, so that's uh, Troll Skull Alley. So, you know, really cool that the, the player characters can get this in. Um, they can run it as a business. And that is detailed as well as the some of the business establishments nearby are detailed, you know, places where they can buy equipment, weapons, armor, um, potions, scrolls, get get spells to copy into their spell books. Um, so so really cool, you know, and, and again, it's something you could use in any adventure you're running. Um, if you need some ideas of things that might be in a city, you can just steal this stuff or, or riff off of it. So really useful. Uh, then we go into the um, factions. And something that's cool is each of the factions have various quests that they will offer the PCs. So keeping in mind that probably, you know, assuming that all the player characters are members of factions, they're all going to be members probably of different factions, possibly multiple factions. Um, so this is a source of a, quite a few side quests that you can add into the adventure. Um, so that's really cool. And, you know, just briefly uh, about these factions, you know, I've always been kind of ho-hum about these factions because they're so, you know, they're Forgotten Realms factions. They're so tied to the Forgotten Realms. They don't seem super useful if you're not using the Forgotten Realms, but you, you can't get away from them. They use them in every adventure they publish. And, Honestly, that used to annoy me. <laughs> I mean, it annoys me that all their adventures are set in the, the realms, which is probably one of my least favorite of the D&D settings out there. But it, it kind of annoyed me, you know, that every adventure had stuff for these factions. But I've kind of changed my mind about that when it occurred to me that, oh, I could just use these factions in my world and call them something else. So I probably wouldn't have them be factions per se, because in, in my setting in Primordia, I have this, a guild of adventurers that it's assumed all player characters are either a member of or, or are on the road to becoming a member of. So what I'm going to do is retool these factions as different parts of the guild or different, I guess, factions within the guild that player characters can be involved with because they are a great way to bring in side quests. They're a great way to bring in NPCs that the player characters have as contacts and allies that they can get help from, that they can get information from. So they're a really useful tool. And it is unfortunate that they are so deeply rooted in the Forgotten Realms. But I think most, if not all of them, you can reskin to fit your world with, you know, not too much effort, definitely less effort than it would take to come up with a faction from scratch. So kind of changed my tune about that. I think, I think they can be useful. Just will take a little doing if you're not running into realms. Another kind of interesting element in this chapter 
is again uh, talking about the various guilds in wa- Waterdeep and, and in Waterdeep at least pretty much anything that would be a trade or a profession has a guild associated with it and you're not allowed to do that thing without being part of the guild so if you want to sell fruit <laughs> you got to be a member of the fruitmongers guild to sell fruit and if you're not then the fruitmongers guild and I don't know if that's an actual guild I'm not going to look it up but just for example, uh, the Fruitmongers Guild will do everything they can to make life difficult for you until you become a member. So kind of a fun element of the player characters getting this in and assuming that they're going to get it operational again and run it as a business is there's all these guilds they need to interact with. Everything from, you know, the Roofers Guild to fix the roof to the um, the Brewers Guild to get their ale from and, and everything else. And it goes into a little bit about how the guilds will make their lives difficult if they try to, you know, sidestep the guilds and not not go through the guilds. So so that's, you know, a fun element you can have some fun with. Um, you know, if you're going to be running this adventure or something like it in your own setting, you know, it will depend on whether you see guilds having that same level of influence and power in in your city uh how useful that will be to you um i'm still considering this whole thing for um alondria my city in primordia um definitely not the way i was thinking of doing it but it is kind of an interesting dynamic so i've been kicking that idea around so i haven't decided here we have a little sidebar with uh some expenses of running the tavern as well as some guidance on profit and loss as far as you know are are the player characters going to be able to make money from this so yeah this chapter two i really like and think will be of some use to you uh even if you don't use this adventure not saying it's worth buying a 50 dollar book for chapter two definitely not but uh is something that that will have some utility above and beyond just this one adventure one thing i'll say about this book is the maps aren't great I'm not sure who the cartographer is. Um, I do know it's not Mike Schley, but it's not Schley or Blando uh, who've done a lot of the maps for a lot of the other supplements that are, those guys make really beautiful maps. These are like line art maps that you could probably do yourself. Um, They are nothing special, nothing artistic really about them. And really, honestly, a letdown, not great maps. I mean, I guess they do the trick for showing you, the GM, you know, kind of what's there. They're not something you're probably going to want to show the players. I I mean, they only have DM only versions and they're just not like great evocative maps. Um, I mean, honestly, you could draw these on grid paper yourself. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could draw these and I have zero artistic talent when it comes to things like that. So that's really disappointing. All right, so let's talk about kind of the innovation, if you want to call it that, of this adventure, which is the fact that you can do it four different ways. So you're given four different kind of main villains to choose, which is going to kind of alter a little bit kind of the flow of the adventure, depending on which of these villains you, you decide to be kind of the main enemy of the player characters. So those villains are. Xanathar, which I don't know why all of a sudden they stopped calling him the Xanathar. <laughs> you know, he was always the Xanathar. Now he's just Xanathar. But again, he's the beholder that that runs the Thieves Guild under Waterdeep. So he could be the villain 
or the Casa Lanterns, which is a noble house in Waterdeep that are secretly devil worshipers. Definitely by far the least interesting of the four options, in my opinion. Um, your third possible villain is Jarlaxle himself. And then your fourth possible villain is Manshoon, who is actually a clone of the wizard Manshoon, who is one of the founders of the Zentarum, which is like, like a big thief's guild slash assassin's guild, basically. Yeah. So those are your four options for your main villain. Um, Personally, if I was going to run this, I would probably pick Xanathar or maybe Jarlaxel. I think Xanathar is great for if you just want a truly evil, diabolical villain. I mean, Xanathar is your man. Well, he's not a man. He's a beholder. Xanathar is your beholder. Jarlaxel, I think, would be fun because he's less cut and dry evil. Um, if you want something with more, you know, shades of gray and nuance and where it's less, you know, good versus evil and, and is more interesting, Xanathar or Xanathar, uh, Jarlaxle would be a great villain because he could actually be seen as an ally of the PCs depending on how they approach it. So I think he's really interesting. Third pick, I guess, would be the clone of the wizard Manchun. Although, I mean, honestly, how, how many adventures do we have in fifth edition where the big bad is a wizard? I mean, too many, I feel like. Um, and then the, the noble family, the Castle Lanterns, is the, the least interesting. So if you pick Xanathar as your main villain, uh, the adventure takes place in the spring. If you pick the noble family, the Castle Lanterns, it takes place in summer. If you pick Jarlaxle, it takes place in autumn. And then if you pick Manchun, it takes place in winter. And each of those is a separate chapter. So again, um, just kind of how this flows um, you're going to start out the adventure with chapter one, which starts out with the, the characters in a bar. They see a bar fight. They maybe get involved, maybe not. And then Volo hires them to find this missing guy named Floon. And then chapter one is them, you know, trying to find this guy and all that good stuff. And by the end of that, you know, presuming that they find Floon and, and complete the quest, then uh, they get possession of an inn and tavern, which is chapter two deals with just kind of them dealing with the inn and tavern because, again, it is haunted. So they have to deal with that. And then assuming they want to open it for business, you know, there's stuff to deal with with that, with the various guilds and getting things repaired and blah, 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 um, hiring staff, all that good stuff. And then there's the actual troll alley and the businesses around there they can explore various NPCs they can meet. Also at this point in the adventure is where you can bring in the different factions. So they have ways that the PCs can be approached by members of all the different factions, given an opportunity to join, given various side quests uh, to do for the factions. And then they're also given a, uh, you're given a business rival. So if they do decide to run the tavern, uh, there's an NPC who also has a tavern in the alley who's kind of wants to see the characters fail. He sees them as competition and he does various things to try to sabotage their business. So you have that kind of side plot uh, going on too in chapter two. So this is a, a part of the adventure that's a little more sandboxy. The, the players can kind of do various things. They can do various side quests for various factions. They can deal with this business rival. They can deal with running running their business. 
Um, they can get to know various NPCs in the area. So, you know, this is, this is a part of, of the adventure that will probably go very differently for every, you know, group that runs it for every GM that runs it. And yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know about this, like so early in, in the adventure, having something this open-ended because the, the first chapter is very linear. You know, the player characters are literally practically following a, a trail of breadcrumbs through that. And then they, they get to this part where it's just kind of, well, do what you feel like doing for a while. And then, you know, we get more into much more linear stuff later. So, you know, I'd have to actually run this and play through it to see how that goes. But I, I see this as being a possible kind of low point of, of the adventure or campaign, a point where you could really lose momentum um, depending how good your players are at kind of self-direction and, and finding things to do. This is a section of, of the adventure you could spend a lot of time with, or it could be a section of the adventure where the players are kind of looking at you like, okay, what's next? We're ready for the next thing. And you're like, oh crap, how do I get them to level three now? They don't want to run the in as a business. They don't care about the NPCs around. They don't care about this business rival because they're not running it as a business. Um, and maybe they don't care about factions. So if that's your player characters, there's not going to be a whole lot for them to do in chapter two. You might just have to hand wave them getting to level three, which again, I would recommend you do that anyway, because it'll save you a lot of pains in your butt. All right. Chapter three then has an inciting incident. So, you know, now that your player characters have been wandering around for a while doing who knows what, um, we're going to get them back on the rails now by a fireball exploding outside of their inn. Again, very cliched kind of thing, especially to pull someone into a heist or an investigation type of thing. To the point, like I've used this as an example so many times on the show of like starting an adventure of the player characters are in in the in a tavern and someone's murdered outside or there's an explosion outside or something happens, something calamitous happens outside the inn that, that kind of pulls them into things. So that, that should work. And so then they, they begin presumably investigating, you know, what's going on, who shot off this fireball and why. Now, one huge flaw with this is that this whole thing assumes that when this fireball goes off in the street, um, outside their tavern, the player characters are going to drop what they're doing and go investigate this and are going to be all about finding out what caused this fireball and why. That's a pretty big assumption. I, I think there's a very real possibility that your players won't care <laughs> or won't care enough to, to go into this huge investigation of what's going on with this fireball. Um, and there's zero guidance given here on what to do if that happens. If your players don't decide to investigate this, you're on your own. <laughs> So that's, that's a pretty big flaw in my book because I don't think all players will investigate this. I don't know that I would investigate it. I don't know that I would really care that much um, about this fireball. So if that's the only hook you have into your adventure, um, you could be in a lot of trouble. So if you're going to run this, you definitely want a plan B and maybe a plan C of how to pull the player characters in if they don't give a crap about the fireball. So again, we go into an investigation here. You know, this is assuming the player characters are going to be like like a, a police investigator and and they're going to investigate the crime scene and they're going to question witnesses and all this stuff. So again, if your player characters don't do that, uh, good luck. You're on your own. 
So assuming they play along and they do that and they follow the railroad where it wants to take them, um, you know, one thing leads to another and they get into this investigation. Um, they find out about, you know, this missing money. They find out that various groups, including the Zentarum, um, Xanathar's Guild, Bregandareth and others are trying to find this money. And, you know, again, it's assumed that the player characters are going to want to either find the money for themselves or try to keep it out of the wrong hands. So again, if your player characters don't care about that, um, you're going to have to come up with some other way to get them into this adventure. You know, that's another reason why I, I kind of dig the Jarlaxel angle is, you know, that could be a way uh, to get them into the adventure in a different way is if you have player characters who are members of Brigand Dareth, instead of, you know, oh, we must find this money so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands because we're goody two-shoes. It could be more of a thing of, hey, we want to find this money because if we do, then we'll get lots of, you know, perks from from Jarlaxle and Brigand Dareth or, or maybe we want to just find it for ourselves, um, which I think are more likely reasons that players would get on board this adventure than just doing it for the good of the realm. All right, so then we get to chapter four, which is where the adventure starts to diverge. So we're given, uh, in chapter four, it looks like we're given 10 different encounters and which encounters you use and which order you use them in will depend on which of the villains you chose. So you don't use them all. So it looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So each of these possible seasons slash villains uses eight of the 10 encounters. So if you're thinking, I'm going to run this adventure multiple times with the same players, understand that chapter one of the adventure is going to be exactly the same. Chapter two of the adventure is going to be exactly the same. Chapter three of the adventure is going to be exactly the same. And then chapter four, whichever of these four paths you pick, you're going to use eight of the 10 encounters. So maybe one or two of those encounters will be different the second time through. But other than that, and, and they'll be in a different order. But other than that, uh, chapter four is going to be entirely the same. Um, so the only thing that's really going to be different between the different versions of the campaign you run is whether you use chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight, or chapter nine. So yeah, I don't see anyone enjoying running this multiple times. It's not going to be a whole lot different than just running any other adventure multiple times. And for the rest of us, the 99% that are only going to run this once, you're going to have three chapters in this book that are going to be useless to you. And you're going to have two encounters in this chapter that are going to be useless to you, uh, unless you figure out a way to use them in some other campaign or, or in some other way. Um, so, you know, these books aren't cheap. So to buy this book for $50 and to have three chapters that are just going to, I could just rip them off and rip them out and throw them away. doesn't make me super happy to be honest, but you know, maybe your opinion will differ on that. All right. So then we have, you know, these different encounter chains. It discusses kind of how the adventure will flow, depending which villain and season you chose more mediocre maps to put it nicely. Yeah, I kind of say I had to look to see who the cartographer is for this. It's uh, someone or someone's <laughs> called Dyson Logos. Because the reason I had to look is I'm like, maybe they just did these in house, you know, and, and they didn't. They hired some company called Dyson Logos to do these maps. And I'm like, why didn't they just do these in house? I feel like anybody on the Wizards team, I feel like Chris Perkins <laughs> could have drawn these maps. I feel like I could have drawn these maps. 
Anybody could have drawn these maps. Why did they pay a company um, to contract to make these maps that like any GM out there could probably draw a map that looks as good as these, if not better. Um, I, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Yeah. These are definitely not maps like we had in Curse of Strahd or Tyranny of Dragons or Storm King's Thunder. Those beautiful maps are not to be found in this or Dungeon of the Mad Mage is the same kind of crappy maps. Also, they're all at most a page eight and a half by 11 inches in size. So it does come with a poster map that folds out. And on one side of the map, it's a map of Waterdeep. I mean, Waterdeep is huge, so it's pretty zoomed out. So about the only detail you're going to get with this map is the different wards. And some of the streets are labeled, or actually it looks like most of the streets are labeled, except some of the like really small alleys. And like the different, you know, the harbors and stuff like that. And then a couple, a few of the places important to the adventure are labeled. So yeah, a good poster size map of Waterdeep on that scale. And then, uh, yeah, and it, it's just double-sided. So one side uh, is for players and the other side is for player, <laughs> for players. One side is for players and, and doesn't have everything from the adventure labeled. And then the other side is for the GM and has adventure locations labeled. So, I mean, this is a nice map. The map of Waterdeep is a nice map. If you're going to run in Waterdeep, like this will be great to have. You know, you've got the names of the streets. You got where the different wards are. It's zoomed out enough. You know, you don't have very many individual buildings labeled, but that's kind of the fun stuff to come up with anyway. Like the stuff I don't want to come up with is names of all the streets, right? So that's pretty cool. Of course, the GM side of it is really only useful for this particular adventure. But yeah, I mean, if you're running in Waterdeep, this map is not nice. The rest of the maps in the book, not so much. So let's go into... Uh, Kind of what's going on in these different chapters, the different seasons. So first we've got spring. And this is if you picked Xanathar as your villain. And this involves Xanathar's lair, which is kind of interesting because let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So basically, okay, it'd be easier to tell you that. Two pages of this chapter do not involve Xanathar's lair. The rest do, but there's really no reason to go to Xanathar's lair in this adventure. And in fact, um, it even says here, you know, killing the beholder is beyond them at this point, obviously. Um, so you kind of have to, you know, orchestrate things so they don't encounter Xanathar directly unless you want to wipe out the whole party. Um, but yeah, like going to Xanathar's lair is not required by the adventure. And when I read through it, I didn't even really see any super solid hooks to take the player characters there. It's just like there's all this stuff spent on Xanathar's lair and you might not even use it, even if you use Xanathar as a bad guy, um, which is kind of weird. So that's that chapter. And then summer is if you're using the noble family as, you know, your antagonist, your main villain. And then a lot of this uh, chapter is their their house, their manor, uh, detailing that. And then chapter seven, fall, is for Jarlaxle. And so this gives you, uh, he's got some ships in the harbor. So this gives you maps of the ships. And, you know, that's pretty much that. And then winter is for Manchun, the wizard. And so this gives you uh, some towers, Col Colot towers. So yeah, you know, I mean, I guess... 
each of these chapters kind of gives you an adventure location that you may not even or even probably won't even use in this. So if you look at those as, well, these are adventure locations I could use in the future, then, you know, maybe those four chapters aren't as useless as it might initially seem. But that assumes that you're going to use them in the future. And then we've got a big section on kind of a guide to Waterdeep. Um, so we've got, you know, history of Waterdeep, more discussion about uh, the laws, you know, how the city watch works. We've got a whole bunch about the, the coins because they got to call the coins something different. They don't call them gold pieces and silver pieces. Taxes and fees for stuff, um, how people travel through the city, landmarks, things like that kind of how the nobles of the city work. Then they go through the different wards, uh, which are the different districts of the city and talk a little bit about each ward, some of the amenities of the city. Uh, they go through some of the holidays that are celebrated in Waterdeep. So, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, if, if I were going to run a campaign in Waterdeep, this isn't enough. I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's nowhere near enough. So I would either be going to the third edition book on Waterdeep or one of the box sets about Waterdeep or, or more likely just going to like the Forgotten Realms wiki or some other wiki online to find information on Waterdeep. You're going to find way more in any of those places than is going to be in here. So, I mean, I guess if you're buying this to run the adventure and you don't know anything about Waterdeep, it's going to give you some more information does it give you enough to really be prepared to run in Waterdeep? I don't think so. Is it worth buying this book just to get this information on Waterdeep? Definitely not. Definitely not. All right. And then we've got magic items. Uh, we've got a, a legendary battle axe. Uh, that's pretty cool. It's sentient. It's called Azure Edge. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, we've got the badge of the watch, which is an item a player character could get if they become a member of the watch. Um, we have the Blackstaff it, itself. Uh, so the Blackstaff, who isn't Kelvin anymore, uh, features in this adventure a bit. Um, so we've got that, which, I mean, I guess maybe that's for if the player characters decide to fight the Blackstaff. But it's like, I guess it, I guess one of your player characters could become the Blackstaff and have this legendary staff. But I don't know. Bracer of Flying Daggers. Um, which I think is an item Jarlaxle has. So yeah, a lot of these items are actually items in possession of NPCs that the player characters probably aren't going to get for treasure. So I guess they're just here in case they fight the NPCs, I guess. Yeah, and some other magic items. So let's see, how many have we got in total? Looks like 11, 12 items, something like that. So again, definitely not worth buying the book for the magic items, but get some new magic items and then monsters and NPCs. A lot of these are NPCs or are, you know, reprints from one of the monster books that aren't the monster manual. Um, so like apprentice wizard, I think was in one of the other books, uh, bard. I really like these NPCs, like having a bard NPC is really useful. You know, <laughs> so many times I find myself telling other GMs cause a lot of times GMs want to make player characters for NPCs it's like, you don't need to do that. If you want a bard NPC, you don't need to make a bard player character. You can just use the bard NPC and it'll be a lot easier on you than trying to make a player character. Again, you're here to GM, not play. All right. <laughs> player characters are for players, not GMs. Um, that's what NPCs are for. 
some of the guards and things of Waterdeep. Um, yeah, a lot of it's uh, NPCs. Oh, oh yeah, here's something to mention. Drow Gunslinger. So if you're like me and you're someone that doesn't like flintlock pot pistols in your fantasy game, um, you're going to have to redo a lot of stuff because these Drow Gunslingers are in here a lot. Like all of a sudden now the the, the Drow have gunpowder. I don't remember anyone in Bregan Durth ever having gunpowder in any of the books about Jarlaxle I've read, which I haven't read all of them probably, but yeah, that's kind of weird, but whatever. I mean, I guess if you're playing in the Forgotten Realms, that's the least of your problems is gunpowder. <laughs> you probably don't care about stuff like that. It's so gonzo anyway. Um, yeah, mo most of this is NPCs. Um, so we've got Jarlaxle. He's CR15, if you're curious. Um, we've got Laryl Silverhand statted out here. Uh, Nimble Wright, that, um, which I'm pretty sure aren't those from Eberron. They're in here for some reason. Um, I mean, they're not just in the monster, they're in the adventure. So again, if you're not into clockwork constructs, um, you'll, you'll want to change that. Um, swashbuckler. Oh yeah. Here's the black staff. The black staff is Vajra Safar. She's actually pretty cool. Kelvin always came off as kind of a dick to me. Um, she's much more someone I could see being an ally of the player characters or a, a mentor or a patron of the player characters, which is pretty cool. And, and you could even, I think, set up something for your campaign where, you know, by the time the player characters are high level, maybe something happens to her and the wizard in your party becomes the new black staff. If that's something the player would enjoy. Um, so that would be pretty cool. Because she's not like super powerful. She's only CR 13. Um, she does have ninth level spells, a ninth level spell. So, you know, she's not like ridiculously powerful like Elminster. So I could definitely see her being replaced by a player character if you wanted to do that. Um, we've got Volo and then the Walking Statues of Waterdeep, which I already said I'm, I'm pretty excited about. And then, yeah, we have a, a map of the Troll Skull Manor and Tavern, which is the. Uh, tavern the player characters get and man again this this is even crappier than the other ones i swear it's like this is the one you're gonna give the player characters and it's even worse than the other maps in the book i think i'd be tempted to just use one of the taverns from uh curse of strahd those were much better maps there was a tavern it was called like the blue water tavern or something like that it was in it wasn't in uh bavaria it was in uh the second bigger town that they go to in Curse of Strahd. Can't remember what it's called. That had an awesome, awesome map done by Mike Schley that, that I really liked. I'd, I'd use that instead of this, but um, yeah. That's something I would be happy to give my player characters and be like, look, here's what your tavern looks like. Isn't this cool? Instead of this thing, it looks like I drew out myself on uh, uh, graph paper. So, yeah. All right. So, so that's what's in the book. I kind of went through it. I always like in my reviews, you know, do kind of a bottom line, buy, don't buy. Um, honestly, I, I can't really recommend this. Um, I mean, I got a review copy and from Wizards. Thank you, Wizards, for that. Um, and, you know, there are things I like in here. Um, I, I like the Troll Skull Alley. I, I could see using that or at least riffing off that in one of my campaigns. 
uh, to flesh out a part of Elandria with these different shops and these different NPCs. I like the Troll Skull Manor, at least the idea of it, how the player characters get it. Like this NPC hires them for a quest and promises them all this money, doesn't have the money, but instead gives them the deed to this, this rundown haunted inn. Um, that's pretty cool. Again, I would find a different map for it because the maps in here suck. Um, and there are much better maps in other fifth edition books uh, that you could use, like like Curse of Strahd. Um, I'm pretty sure Princes of the Apocalypse has at least one tavern detailed with a nice map in it. Um, pretty sure uh, Tyranny of Dragons has at least one tavern detailed with better maps than what are in here. Um, probably any <laughs> adventure uh, like Storm King's Thunder, I'll bet, has one too. Um, so there are other places you can be get better maps for that. But the idea of it is cool. You know, some of the merchants, you know, and ideas what to charge for potions or spells that the player characters can copy. You know, that's cool. You know, little bits and pieces like that that I'm going to find use from. But, you know, if I had to pay 50 bucks or even 30 bucks on Amazon for this book for that, it's it's not worth it. Um, some new NPCs that, that would be useful, but again, doesn't make it worth it. So I'd say if you're super wanting to do a heist investigation type adventure and you don't want to come up with one on your own or you don't know a different one to run, um, that'd be a great thing, I guess, to, to give you an alternative heist adventure to do instead, like an older D&D adventure or something. But I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, I didn't really run a lot of canned adventures back in the old days. You know, I, I don't know. Oh, and I guess I should mention that the kind of the climax of this uh, adventure, uh, when they finally find the money, of course, there's a monster, quote, monster guarding it. Um, but the monster that guard guards it is a good dragon. Um, so again, kind of subverting expectations a little bit. I'm trying to, I think it's a bronze dragon. I'm trying to find it in here. So yeah, that's kind of different because, you know, they finally get to the the final boss and it's a good aligned creature that it seems much more reasonable that they would negotiate with as opposed to fight. Um, so that's something to think about too. You know, are you going to be satisfied? Are your players going to be satisfied with the kind of climax of the adventure being a discussion negotiation as opposed to a battle? So, yeah, I, I guess if you're really wanting to run a heist, you'd be happy with this, probably. Um, but otherwise, probably not. Uh, Ivor on our MeWe community said, I'd like to know if I can learn how to make city-based adventures with a lot of intrigue and cunning. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I guess this could be an example of that, um, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. And honestly, I, I don't know how much this example would really help you. Um, it's not like this is the most awesome heist I've ever seen, you know, intriguing kind of, it's really, it's really not at that level. Um, I think if you wanted inspiration for that, or you wanted some guidance on how to make that kind of an adventure, um, you get a lot more from just reading a good heist or watching a good heist movie and taking notes and going from there, than you're going to learn from this. It's definitely not worth paying the cover price for this book to try to use it in that way because it's frankly it's not that great of an example there are far far better examples out there watch the show leverage or watch one of the oceans 11 movies or you know find find a, a better heist 
adventure from another game or something like that. Um, this isn't it. This isn't uh, the thing you're going to buy for that. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it would be worth it to buy this book to learn how to plan a city adventure. I mean, it's an okay example, but there are better examples out there, I think, than this. So I, I think if you buy it for that reason, you're not going to be satisfied. I think the only way you're going to be satisfied with this is if you actually run the adventure. And even then, I'm not so sure because, again, you're not going to use all of it. And yeah, it's 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 an adventure. Like it's a very it, it takes a very specific taste to enjoy this adventure. There's not a ton of combat. The main climax isn't combat. It's a lot of talking to NPCs, a lot of role playing, a lot of investigating. And, you know, that's either going to be your group's bread and butter and you're going to love it or it's not and you're not. And you probably know which is the case. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for episode 245. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker or call my voicemail 951-GMJ-LEX1. You can find all that stuff in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com slash gamemastersjourney. And you can also find our community on MeWe and our server on Discord. You can find links to that in the show notes as well. If you'd like to help support the show, best way you can do that is to check out my supplements for D&D. Uh, the Trickster's Labyrinth, which is an adventure, and Relics of Power, which is all about making magic items that scale in power with your player characters. However you decide to support the show, I really appreciate it. I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I hope you have a chance to run your favorite RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.